Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it continues its 1980s dominance of the comic book market. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And we are finally back to talking about the big man in red and blue, sometimes with a lion on his chest, but usually decked out in Union Jacks. I'm not talking about Union Jack. Of course, I'm talking about Captain Britain. Pip, pip, cheerio. It's been a weird journey for us talking about Captain Britain. We started with his serial way back in 1975. And obviously the X-Men took off a little bit more than Captain Britain himself did. And here we are standing at the precipice of like Captain Britain greatness. Everybody associates this era with Alan Moore, but a whole lot more guys worked on this than just Alan Moore. Alan Davis actually sort of was the guy behind this whole reboot process in the first place. And the reboot began with Marvel Superheroes number 377, which ran through Marvel Superheroes number 388, before heading on over to the Daredevils for numbers 1 through 11. Now, Alan Davis was the artist on all of this, but Alan Moore, the guy so associated with this, didn't come in until 387. Until then, the series saw a number of writers like Dave Thorpe and Paul Neary and Alan Davis had always had a huge involvement in the creation of the stories and while he would come on to write later on he was an intrinsic part of coming up with this narrative there's actually a joke about how when he came up with the Captain Britain redesign he knew that that was the one was done and so then he drew two kind of crappy things so that he could claim that he drew three things but he knew the one it was going to be right away. I respect that. How do you not respect that? That's like conviction and sticking to your guns. And speaking of sticking to your guns, you know, it's funny that they tried to just keep rolling right out of Hulk UK with this. That was something I thought was kind of a fascinating take on things. The stories we're going to be taking a look at kicked off in September of 1981 and ran until roughly November of 1983. Again, Alan Moore wasn't even the guy that brought all of this back, but there's this panel that's sort of like all fucked up where it's in blue and Captain Britain's like look it's my old costume and Jackdaw's like the shit and then all of a sudden Captain Britain's like I'm in a cool new costume and Jackdaw's like I'm really just so desperately sad to see the old costume and scepter gone I know you're more partial to the current ongoing most iconic I guess Captain Britain costume but I love the lion and I loved his you know cute blonde tuft of hair at the top and you know that I love accessories so I'm really sad to see the costume gone I really respect uh how frequently throughout every bit of Captain Britain they go out of their way to make sure that the reader isn't confused so there's dialogue saying oh what's this my costume's changing and then later it's oh somehow I can fly even though my scepter is gone they really try to make some effort toward internal logic with all of that so I really respect and appreciate it but 
man, I miss the old costume already. And it's actually a pretty shared sentiment among fans that that costume is iconic and magical, which is why I'm pretty sure that's the look that the Lionhearts go with, the Lionhearts being the other core that a number of writers have worked on, and it was introduced by Chris Claremont in the pages of New Excalibur, and it's it's just an awesome idea, and it's cool that that costume's come back, and, you know, right off the bat, shit's crazy weird, because... I, I kind of love the Crazy Gang un, unabashedly. They are like some of my faves. That name's a little lazy, though. But they're the Crazy Gang. I guess so. Yeah, that's pretty entertaining. And, oh, it's so good. And a name that I recognize from being married to you, Madjim Jaspers. Madjim Jaspers, the most amazing use of a yellow checkered coat outside of Cher from Clueless ever. That's fair. Madjim Jaspers' introduction as this, like, Ha, I'm just a bad guy. Ha, ha! Is so interesting. And the Crazy Gang as well. It's this sort of, like, look, everything's small potatoes. And the actual shock is the political intrigue that, oh, wait, we're in the wrong reality? And this whole idea of jumping realities becomes so central to who Captain Britain is. It's interesting to see that it's right off the bat in the first story. Now, a little bit of information that people might not be aware of is that the American editions of this story initially began with Alan Moore's first issue, 387. So a lot of this context was missing for me until this omnibus edition became readily available. Given how confusing it already is to jump into this, I can't imagine how confusing that must have been for you at the time. It also created a false sense of relationship and romance because I didn't have a number of those stories I projected how severe they were based on Alan Moore's love of what I'm going to call swollen dialogue but right off the bat there is kind of a sense of that that swollen oh god everything is destroyed because one thing where Brian's like something is very wrong indeed I don't think that that's unique to Alan Moore, though. I think that that is something that I have pretty consistently found throughout the Captain Britain narrative. And I think it's because of its short form serialized nature that they are constantly being hyper dramatic to help lure audiences back in for the next adventure. I didn't feel that it was out of place more that I wish it was something that it would grow out of finally. Because I'm going to pick on something that we've kind of picked on since the beginning with good reason. Jack Daw sucks. And I had the trade that came out in 1989. It was like Captain Britain before Excalibur. And then they did the X-Men Archives collection that had some of these stories. And they did the other Alan Moore trade thing in I think like 98 or 96, whenever it was. So I only understood because of that level of severely exaggerated dialogue that we will come to see later in this volume. I thought Jack Daw mattered. I thought the initial Saturnine story that we're going to get to spanned years. And it kind of plays into the like dystopian misery that populates those first few issues where it's just Captain Britain versus the giant robot surrounded by really poor people. I think a lot of what we read for this episode is them trying to shake off the less desirable traits of Captain Britain. Because, you know, the ideas are really interesting and great. But then there's a lot of really stupid stuff, like you say, where like a robot monster rises up out of a junkyard made out of like old appliances and shit. And then it's pretty quickly dispatched and then it's never important again. And you just want them to get to the actual meat of the story, which is interesting and fun and engaging and 
as I understand it, groundbreaking for the time. But, you know, garbage monster, not so much. But I don't long for the days of Die Thomas, and I don't miss Jack O'Tanner. I was, I was, I was, to get a bit of ahead of ourselves, so mad when we saw his face again, and was so grateful that we only saw it once in all of the reading for this episode. We will see more of him later on, and he is a much redeemed character, instead of leaning into being the J. Jonah Jameson-iest piece of shit ever, he kind of goes a little bit more reluctant Commissioner Gordon- I can be okay with that because I think that the non-superhero characters need to have a bit of skepticism when it comes to superheroes. I think that it can't all be, and I don't mean to use this phrase, but hero worshipping. I think that, you know, they need to be uh, held accountable for their actions and need to be scrutinized. So I want to see that from a character like Di Thomas, but he was just so extreme in the original Captain Britain stories, and it's not fun or engaging or sympathetic. And speaking of scrutinizing a superhero, Brian's powers are so dramatically shifted in this story, back and forth over and over again. He has that force field hand in the final page of issue 379, and I'm like, that's that's some new ability there, motherfucker. And then they keep shifting back and forth. It's his power is within him, but it's his costume, but now it's not his costume, but his costume still enhances his abilities, so if he doesn't have his costume, they're not as good as they would be if he had his costume. Ah. These first few issues are clearly them trying to get their bearings, and I think that comes across in so many explicit ways with the introduction of the avant-garde and Algernon the rat thing as we lead into issue 380. And issue 380, in support of Darwin, this is probably the issue that I think Alan Moore went back and said, I can find something to do in there. And I respect that a lot more than I respect the introduction of the Devolvo Ray. We get the push, the Devolvo Ray, and the fluid, and this is such a... The 1980s were really a thing about expansive ideas and technology evolution and drugs. It's a lot of really fun, clever ideas, though. You've got the status crew, your wyness, the avant-garde. I found their little uh, umbrella reality guns kind of confusing at first because I thought they blew a hole in reality because they hit Cap's force field, but apparently that's just what their guns do. And, you know... It's that, uh, it's that, yeah, so Captain Britain turns into a monkey. Yeah. This is some arsenal they have. And it's such a random place to take this story. I love the setup that the writers before Moore put together to create a powerful context. The creation of Saturnine of being before Alan Moore. The introduction of Mad Jim being before Alan Moore. You know, people have been killing Jackdaw forever. And I find so much of what's happening here to be compelling and a lot about responsibility. They talk about it's important to either push this world forward or in some cases to reduce it to nothing because there's a bigger picture at play now i don't know that it's always important to say but the bigger picture but but you know sometimes you need to take a a step back and take a look and think about suffering i thought a lot of this was actually especially in the light of what's going on right now in late may early june 2020 a lot of this is actually still pretty relevant it's about people deserving to be treated equally and there is something very powerful to the idea that saturnine creates an internal conflict for brian he's not sure the right move or 
or who exactly is pulling the strings for what reasons. And that's definitely a big part of the narrative that I wish we had seen more fulfillment on. Brian asks a few times why he was even sent to this world in the first place, and we don't ever really get an answer on that, which I don't love. And it's funny because, like, you know, the story comes together over time in pieces. And I feel like it's issue number 382 where Alan Davis's art finally becomes Alan Davis's art. We start to see the character faces in ways we recognize. I love those green data panels and the interpretation of Captain Britain as the X with the helmet sideways. There's a lot of powerful visuals. Mm-hmm. The coloration also begins to express a lot. There is something really dynamic to how well this is colored, and that's actually important. Kevo, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this was all originally black and white. I was not, actually. So the only things that were colored were the covers, and this was originally all printed in black and white, and it was colorized for later editions. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, these pages were colorized for this edition because this was the first time they were reprinted in America. Wow. There is a really dramatic shift that comes in issue 383. Something that I'd noticed is that, as always, it's kind of Captain Britain fights and runs, Captain Britain fights and runs, and there's sort of weird gaps in time. And you can tell that he's not ready to shake off all of the awkward vestiges of his previous incarnation quite yet. There's something in issue 383 where everything becomes very concerned with very human, very honest, real things. You mean after he's lost Jackdaw, his only companion? You've been traveling with Jackdaw for like a day. Calm down, Brian. And you like usually hate him. Which I hadn't gotten the, I I mean, I still don't get the intense hatred. But yeah, no, I found him annoying too, especially because he got drunk a lot. And he shows up in that t-shirt and he's like, hey, what's up? I'm cool and it's the 80s. Yeah, that's, that, that was, that was the other thing I was going to say. It's kind of like the Cardcaptor's interpretation of the character Kiro Barros versus the original Cardcaptor Sakura. It is a weird fucking shift. And you know, some something that really gets me in 383 is that Brian actually does still want to bring magic. Something he always wanted to do was protect people and innocence in particular. And that does stay a defining moment of his character that he flies off with a child to show them that magic is real in some ways is really spectacular. And it's that reminder that magic is real that's immediately contrasted with the vision of Merlin. And I just sort of find the fact that Merlin is watching from afar, not quite in focus yet. We get a lot more of that Captain Britain is just such a normal guy trying to protect the normal folk a little bit more. The story doesn't really have a driving force yet. And I think that lostness, that first 50 pages being so unfocused, is part of why it was never collected in America before. Kevo, I know you read this in like shift, like almost like you collect a full issue's worth to read at a time because again these are six and four and eight page stories how did this first 50 pages seem to you it's exactly as you say it was very unfocused meandering especially when they introduced this idea of the different districts of london being at war with each other and these side characters and you know you just you need to pick a story and go with it and then to out of nowhere 
there insert a story that came before this one that our heroes just don't remember. Like, I respect and appreciate nonlinear storytelling, but you're trying to reestablish an old hero and engage a new audience. You kind of need to be a little more accessible. And it's fascinating that this is the kind of story that was running in this title because the British invasion of the late 80s in American comics, especially over in the pages of Vertigo at DC, is going to be populated with stories just like this, especially in narratives like Hellblazer. So it makes a lot of sense to see its earliest days here. But okay, for a book that doesn't have Alan Moore yet, the craziest motherfucking thing in the world comes in issue 385, where... They have to put this little note. When Merlin and Arthur dispatched Captain Britain and Jackdaw the Elf from Otherworld to Earth, see issue one, they passed through a misty limbo between the dimensions. This adventure took place during that journey. And this is just straight up some Alan Moore shit, and he's not even on the fucking book yet. Ha. Everybody's weird looking, but, you know, you can actually see how 90s some of the coloration is on this. And it's an interesting story. I think the two bodies, one entity concept is really fun and interesting but it's just why is it here inevitably somebody fell behind and they were able to pull this out or this was a drawer story like there had to be a motivating reason we've all been there absolutely and you know they set up this thing where Merlin's still involved and like watching on and they needed to buy time and 386 marks the last time Alan Moore isn't shaping this narrative We return right back to Jeff and Sharon for some reason. And this is really the last, like, oh my god, everything is just so human, but... Jesus, I, the, the fuck Jackdaw's superhero costume? Uh. And it makes you think, oh, he's important. Like, if we hadn't read everything, you might even think Jackdaw's important. It's true. But that last page, it's, I often think to myself, there's no way that Alan Moore didn't write that last page <laughs> where Jim Jaspers comes back and it's the crooked world and the universe is coming apart at the seams. And I just kind of can't imagine that that wasn't Moore's doing. Probably. And I think that 387 really does change kind of the Marvel Universe forever. I love the Fury. I think that the simplicity of the Fury's design is beautiful. And I think so much about the visceral nature of the narrative that takes over as it's immediately the same book as Miracle Man. You think? Like, it's conceptually and spiritually, they both have very unique identities. I'm not saying Alan Moore can only write one thing, especially at this point in his career. He was really experimenting across a wide breadth of ideas. But as soon as he comes on, it takes a look at what's come before and synthesizes reality out of it. It takes a lot of the spectacle and the -the over-the-topness instead of being... Like, I often think of the Fury as a further extension of the Appliance Monster. It's like the Appliance Monster got a real push. Yeah, okay, yeah, I get what you're saying, and it's what I had been saying I was looking for as well. It's not that the loose concepts that Captain Britain came up with were bad, but they needed a little bit more of a, to borrow a phrase from the pages, push. And they keep killing Jackdaw. I love that they keep killing Jackdaw because it, again, every time I got more pages of this earlier story, I'm like, damn, Jackdaw's important. Man, they really He was my only friend. Well, buddy, the, I, I, I miss Courtney Ross, man. I miss Courtney Ross. I miss anyone. Also, I did catch the fact that they switched the spelling of Saturnine's name mid-arc. Saturnine's name and other Saturnines, that's going to come up a lot. And speaking of 
of names that are going to come up a lot. Mad Jim Jasper's introduction is this glorious nightmare. And I just think it's so well done. I'm the upside down box at the bottom of the page is a great line. He is such a well thought out sociopath. And like, I often think characters like the Joker that are like, I chop up things just to chop them up are like just like so fucking stupid but mad jim has such a consistency to his illogic i buy it but i didn't really like this issue though the last thing that i wanted was to see issues of captain britain wailing and pleading for his life again and again i will agree it's actually kind of disappointing to see that that's what we come in on i want to comment on some of the tremendous little footnotes at the bottom of of one of the last pages of 388 Graveyard Shift where Cap is in a graveyard and we see Garth, which is probably a reference to Simon Garth the zombie who was a mainstay at Marvel through the Marvel horror years, as well as Android Andy. Awesome Android is Andy. That's another reference. Uh, But the one that really makes my heart skip a beat is Miracle Man and Puppet Master who is listed as in the fight sequences with Miracle Man and Captain UK later on. But, you know, when the Fury just outright executes Captain Britain and we cut to Linda I like I'm just like oh my god what's happening this is the best book in the world I like things about it I'm just really tired of them killing Captain Britain but not yet tired of them killing Jackdaw no so the Daredevils number one is actually one of my favorite pieces of art ever. The Merlin and Roma retelling and reconstruction of Captain Britain and revealing who Merlin is. Like, I don't miss God War, like the days of, I'm Merlin and I can't beat this magical beast in this interdimensional void, you have to. Like, I don't miss that arc exactly, but I feel like some version of that chopped together, plus this as number one. And you could really do a, a decent job with the Captain Britain trade. I probably would include the two issues that are just killing Captain Britain over and over again. I don't know. It's a bummer, but I do think they're in some ways necessary. I get you. You had had some comments that you felt that talking about that Captain Britain would have never been happy anyway. And what is happiness? The universe needs him more. You know, I love this issue, but... I really accept your points. What Roma says is he could have been happy. Doesn't that concern you? And, you know, what I need to hear more from scenarios like this is he could have been more miserable because they make a pretty strong case that Brian was very lost, very depressed. At the very least, this gave him some kind of purpose, but... I don't necessarily know, based on everything that we know about Brian Braddock, that he would have been happier if this hadn't happened to him. And in a lot of ways, I love that he's just spat back out into Darkmoor, that this beautiful retelling culminates in his rebirth near his home. And what works for me about that is that first couple of adventures are sort of like, okay, he's Captain Britain, but he kind of gets plucked from reality and doesn't get back for a really long time. And according to Merlin, that's all, you know, Merlin needing him. But there's a lostness to that there's a oh captain britain became part of somebody else's story and putting him back with these great new powers it's kind of like he's been rewarded like his that champion aspect is over sure he died at the hands of mad jim jaspers but he had done enough good things to warrant rebirth this is actually going to be a major tentpole of merlin's characterization as it relates to the x-men going forward I'm not thrilled about some of the reframing of Brian's story, though. Like, they talk about how 
he spent several years defining himself as a superhero and like I did not get from the context of the original stories that we read that it had been a few years they then say that he spent two years as a hermit two fucking years really uh, some of the time stuff that they're laying down is very odd and it's that thing where they're blurring the fact that their six-month adventure actually could have only been three days in universe but it was published over six months so it becomes both six months and three days yeah that's a major pratfall comics have often suffered from and you know what's really interesting is a lot of these stories couldn't be reissued in any meaningful way at this point so alan moore and Alan Davis are not just recontextualizing, but they're bringing up stuff that audiences are going to have a hell of a time getting their hands on, which makes Daredevil's number two, which kind of tells the other half of Captain Britain's origin, the half that Merlin kind of wouldn't give a fuck about, like the personal half with Mastermind and fucking while his parents died in an explosion or whatever. Oh my god, get over it. Ugh. I'm so tired of him talking to his parents' corpses. But, you know, he, uh, he yells at the house, and now he's got a big magical mansion yeah for now here's the thing braddock manor blows up a lot it's like a british xavier's institute it comes back a lot there's this famous short story and it's altogether two sentences the last man in existence sat alone in a room there was a knock at the door and they kind of use that device to transition daredevils number two to daredevils number three but what daredevils number three is most significant for is it gives us like real betsy yeah, it was exciting to meet Betsy again. And not just Betsy, but real Betsy. I love Betsy here. She's finally like purple hair, psychic badass, instead of, I'm tied to this stick and I'm burning. I love when she's like, Brian, I'm in trouble. No, not that kind of trouble. Did Brian, after several years separated from his sister, immediately accuse her of being pregnant? Well, considering that there's multiple panels of them looking at each other, being like, are you my sibling? Are you like, they don't know who each other is. And Brian's been sort of all over reality and he's a big wreck. He was a wreck before that. Well, okay, that is true. And so now he finds out that his sister is a spy working for Strike, which is the British psychic shield. A psychic spy. She's so psychic. And someone's trying to kill her because they're killing a bunch of psychics. And it's... Okay, so, you know, this this whole Slaymaster gambit... I kind of get where the Slovene are coming from now in Doctor Who. This is just, if you've just got like a big chubby head on, no one will know that you're not an alien. I was so mad that Slaymaster was back. Oh, you don't love Slaymaster? I love Slaymaster. No. Oh, and he's, and he's, you know, I, okay, I'll be honest. As much as I love Slaymaster versus Captain Britain, especially the way they show it in Daredevil's number four, there's a little bit about the whole, I've turned my hand into a stick. I've turned my hand into a weapon and now I can cut your fucking arm off. What? No. 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 I've punched a brick until I had a ninja hand. Ugh. You've heard of ninjas, haven't you? I did specifically love when he slapped Slaymaster so hard that the guy just like went flying. He's just such a piece of crap. So when Die Thomas is like looking for witnesses after Brian flies away and Betsy's like, what flying man? Are her eyes crossed on purpose or is that just bad art? I, I think it's some unfortunately placed art. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not crossed. Going off in different directions. Not better. No, not better. However, you know what I loved? Arcade and Miss Locke showing up. Sure. Arcade is one of my all-time favorite X-Men villains, and seeing as his connections to Captain Britain are, are so intense, I really love what he brings to the table. 
I just want us to be introducing more new villains. It was my complaint back when we were reading the older black and white Captain Britain issues. And now here he is back having adventures again and still not getting new villains. Well, if what you want is new villains, I can't quite help you. But what if you're looking for is new characters, I have plenty. Now, we did get a new villain in the form of the Fury. We have Madjim Jaspers and we have the Fury. And theoretically, we have the Crazy Gang because they're connected to Madjim in some way or another. And now we get more new characters. And good gracious, do I love them. And it starts off with War Dog looking badass. I like these characters. I don't love full issues content being revealed to be hilarious misunderstandings. We think that they're villains the entire issue who are here to perhaps kill Brian and instead they just need his help. Yeah, I love the special executive, War Dog, Cobweb, Fascination. They're an amazing crew and it's just a little absurd that they take out Psylocke and they go to fight Captain Britain, although the amount of naked Brian, Brian sleeps naked, good boy. I love that that describes as gentlemanly yeah it is now it turns out they were sent here by saturnine who needs help okay so now again imagine your first issue was the mad gym stuff and they're like oh saturnine needs your help you think he must have had like 80 adventures with saturnine not six pages and then they have the whole touching scene together and later Mandragon's going to accuse them of being lovers and then later still they flirt a little bit. So yeah, I can see where you would think that that interaction was much more meaningful than it actually turned out to be. I love a number of things that kick off right away in this issue, whether it's the introduction of Legion, who can pull himself from his own timeline, or referring to Finding, being in parallel universes disorienting as universe lag. I love the introduction of Captain England, Captain Albion. I love all of these characters and the idea that the core exists and the great trial. I mean, you know, you had said to me that you found Mandragon really offensive. He is like a pushy, aggressive, hateful black man who is named Mandragon. It's, it didn't age well. It does come off a little bit. Why is this the only black man in your book? Yeah, that was pretty much it. It's so important that despite the attempt to destroy the universe he's from, that the Fury survives. The Fury can survive anything. It kind of matches Captain Britain. He's died and come back so many times. The Fury can't even die. Sure, Captain Britain's got a million lives, but it doesn't seem like the Fury even needs a second one. I think it's just being on this side of history that I find the Fury more a nuisance than engaging because they're telling us that it's this thing that can never die. And I'm like, but I know Captain Britain survives several times over. So I would rather them focus on, you know, a more engaging plot that I feel there can be real consequence from. Because it's not like the Fury is here to have a conversation with you. But we do get the backstory that we need to understand understand the significance of the fury and it's going to sound so dumb but these four pages are completely why i made you read miracle man well first of all i love the issue name rough justice i've definitely watched that men.com video completely and i mean there's way more reasons that you made me read all of miracle man than just for these four pages but i think it adds a layer to it for sure watching the fury just take out the miracle family where evidently in that universe uh dicky who goes by rick 
is married to Linda, who is a captain, which I like. Just, you know, it's it's weird that they're not quite the versions we know and love. That's how an omniverse works. Well, one of the other things that is so central to the Captain Britain omniverse is the core. And there's an honesty to the core. There's a a nobility. There's so, I mean, you know, there's unfortunately going to be some Nazi Captain Britons like Hauptmann Gland. But I love the nobility of the core so that when Cap is like, oh, I got to fight you people. The captains aren't like, yeah, we're going to beat the shit out of you for fun. They're like, oh, we must do the thing we must do. Even if it kills talk show hosts. Oh, I loved the talk show hosts, though. I did, too. I thought they were a really nice, adorable touch. I also have to say, just slightly in defense of Saturnine's sentencing, uh, you know, she she didn't not fuck up that Earth. She could have perhaps been a little less cocky and paid a little closer attention, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, I I really just need to, I need to give it up for the gorgeous splash page in issue eight. I love that two page spread. It's so stunning. And so the special executive helps Captain Britain escape with Saturnine. Meanwhile, the Wynus is going a little bit crazy with power. And at the end of the day, it seems like Captain Britain just gets away, gets back to Braddock Manor with all of his new friends, and they're on the run from, we think it's the core. But truly, as Linda's there to tell us, we're waiting on the end of the world. And this is where it feels like Alan Moore is such a genius at pulling together other people's threads. Daredevil's number nine gives us the Mad Jim speech, which is the exact same speech that leads to the creation of the Fury. And then all of a sudden Merlin's back. Like, this is where I become so engaged in the Captain Britain narrative. I get that, especially because we see cameo appearances from people like Sebastian Shaw. Who adds such a layer of multidimensionality to this universe. I'm also so in love with the subtle way he turns his white wine to red wine, especially because the transformation of wine is such a biblical idea and this perversion of it, wine to more wine. Also, Merlin and Roma are going to be defined by their chess games forever. So I find myself so happy with so much. I can't even like, and then there's the beast from the Frank Miller, the hand stories. And all of a sudden the Fury's back. Like it's such a roller coaster for these last few issues as everybody faces off against the fury it becomes a bloodbath whether it's legion or war dog's arm but mad jim and the fury wind up proving a little bit more than captain britain and the special executive can handle i have to say though something i am dissatisfied by with the ending of this reading is i feel like i'm not even sure what was accomplished or what we will be returning to in the story I feel like Captain Britain's stories currently are just kind of constantly dealing with what is thrown at you, and there isn't really any focus or purpose to the story at the moment. And it's not that I need it, but it's something I would like. Well... When we return, we're going to be taking a look at the Mighty World of Marvel 7 through 16, which will see the summation of Alan Moore's story, which is going to give you a lot of the answers you're looking for. It's also going to kick off Jamie Delano's story as we head into Captain Britain 1 through 6. This is going to be the second of our three-part look at the Captain Britain omnibus era before the guy disappears until Excalibur.
I'm just so happy to be back with these characters. And he finally feels like my Brian. This feels like my story. There's an Omniverse. We're dealing with the Captain Britain core. Saturn 9 is here, the push. These are my stories. And I feel so secure in how relevant they still remain. Some of the tropes have aged poorly, but the heart of these stories remains relevant as ever. Some have aged poorly, but some are still as original as ever as well. Some of these ideas are things that I haven't seen before and it's almost 40 years later so and until we return to take a look at the second of our three-part series kevo where can everybody find you online you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also find me on the Facebook page for our other program here on the Cage Club Network, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. And you can find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that we tell featuring Kid Riot and his team over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? As always, you guys can find me all over this amazing network on Mondays and Thursdays here on X's for Podcast and on Tuesdays over on HTML where Kevo and I are currently taking a look at the Star Wars Clone Wars universe. Don't forget to check me out over on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Guys, remember that it's everything going on, people need to come first, Black Lives Matter, and we need to get change and making sure everyone feels safe. And until we return, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see ya. Bye.